Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. If you have a Bible, would you join me in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, and the book of Revelation, chapter 22. So two places, one at the beginning, one at the end, and I have a Christmas message that I'm calling the thousand-mile tree. The thousand-mile tree. If you ever find yourself on an extended layover in Salt Lake City, Utah, you can jump in an Uber or rent a car and drive about an hour away from the airport, and you will indeed find a tree, a peculiar tree, which to this day has this sign on it. And the sign says the thousand mile tree. That right there is a 30 foot tall pine tree that has the label and the fence around it protecting it, thousand mile tree. The history of this tree is fantastic. It goes back much earlier. You'll see in this photo the original tree, and it was a 90-foot-tall pine tree that died in the year 1900, but it was precisely 1,000 miles at that tree, 1,000 miles away to the inch from Omaha, Nebraska, where the Transcontinental Railroad emerged from, connecting east to west. They worked from Omaha. They worked from Sacramento. They met right outside of Utah, just 80 miles away from this tree. They finally finished it. The Golden Spike was driven, and the railroad was connected, and the nation went crazy. I mean, the na- I-, I was just reading in some of the Springfield history about the train and how when the train first came through here in, I think, the year 1850, every single person who lived in Greene County showed up to greet the first locomotive. It changed the world. It changed how we communicated. It changed how we were able to you know, travel. It changed so many things. It was the internet of its time. Now, of course, you guys are like, are we talking about the same thing? That annoying thing that I have to wait while it crosses? Yeah, the train. It was life-changing because along with the train, they brought in the telegram. And so now communication was instant and travel was safe. And we didn't have to go around South America and die in a shipwreck or go on the Oregon Trail and have grandma get dysentery or you know whatever it was. And, and it was a much better way to live. The thousand-mile tree they celebrated because they realized we had come so far, and there was a tree here. So a workman put a a sign up, and they celebrated a thousand miles. Well, there's a thousand-mile tree in Scripture. And around Christmas time, so many of us have trees in our homes. We're thinking about trees. There's a divide. I get it. There's some of you all who are like, fake Christmas tree, fake Christmas. And there's some of you who are like me. where's Where's my fake Christmas tree people at? Anybody? Yeah, I realize, I know, it's, it's cantankerous. It's, it's a big divide, it's a big schism. But some people like me, who are allergic to Christmas and touching a Christmas tree, I break out in hives. Anybody like me? You just get too itchy being around a Christmas tree? How many of you are just worried about a fire? Is that, anybody, anybody? How about uh, you just don't want to vacuum up pine needles? Any, any, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Too lazy, I get it. Jesus came to die on the cross, you can't even hang up a Christmas tree, whatever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We have a fake Christmas tree. Let me tell you, it's not popular in Montana. I don't talk about it when I'm at home, okay? (laughs) The thousand-mile tree. Genesis chapter 2. Let's start here. Some familiar verses. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made, notice, every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden 
to water the garden. And from there, it parted and became four river heads. And then the names of those four <clears throat> rivers are given. And then if you jump down to verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, we know how that went. They listened to that instruction for about 10 minutes, right? And it's interesting, you find this theme in scripture. Whenever you take what God has told you not to touch, you prevent him from being able to give you what he wanted you to have all along. It's like that when, when it comes to tithing. When I keep 100% of my paycheck and don't give God back what he's told me to leave for him, I prevent God, you prevent God, we prevent God, listen to this, from being able to give us what he wanted us to have. That's why Malachi says when we don't bring the tithe, we're robbing God. It's an interesting thing to think, how can I rob God? Can a man rob God, right? What an aggressive statement. But let's drill down on it for a second. Did the robbery occur if there's no less resource than there was before it took place? That's some inception stuff right there, right? Can God have less than he has? Can God, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, all right? The answer, it was, it, was, it was not a trick question. The answer is no. God can't ever have less because if there was less, he would just speak more and there would be more. So what are we robbing God of? Certainly it's not the money. I believe, I submit to you, it is the opportunity to bless you like he wants to. When you don't give, God's not mad that you robbed him of money. He's straight up steaming because the good father longs to bless his kids. But when you take what he told you not to touch, you prevent him from being able to give you what he wanted you to have all along. He longs to open up the windows of heaven on your life. But a lack of generosity closes the door and won't let any of that generosity in. He's just leaving that sticker on your door like FedEx, right? <laughs> that it's just a big killjoy to find when you get home from work. No! So Adam and Eve take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they are banished from the garden, and most significantly, have no longer the access to God's presence as symbolized by the ability to eat from the tree, the tree of life. And on from there, the Bible goes. Every murder, every sin, every scandal, every, every horrible thing we've ever experienced, cancer, crime, country music, all the horrible parts of this world. <laughs> anybody amen with me on that at all? Thank you, Jesus. Um, again, not popular in Montana. I only can preach this way on the road. Only you guys know the real me. I hope no one on Fresh Life Church ever sees this YouTube broadcast. But... Just be everyone just leaving my church immediately in droves. But. but it's interesting, when you get to the book of Revelation, which is still future, because what we just read is past to us, but Revelation is future yet. So much of the Bible we read is history, but this now is coming soon to a world near you. It's interesting, when you get to Revelation 22, which do you notice, last chapter of the Bible, and we read these highlighted words in Revelation 22, what does it say? It says, and he showed me, John speaking, as he got to see into the future, 
a pure river, a water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street and on either side of the river, notice, was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We're given some information we didn't get back in Genesis 2, huh? The tree of life is like Willy Wonka style. It changes its flavor every month. That's fantastic, right? In heaven, the water fountains, they give Hawaiian punch. It's a good, good thing. And verse 3, because we will have access to that tree, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So like in Genesis, when we were told before there was sin, Adam and Eve kept the garden. Their job was tend the garden and keep it. Here at the end, again, sin is gone. Sin has been removed. We have access back to the tree we lost access to. When the tree is restored and we're able to eat its fruits and drink from the water and be with God because his throne is there, it says his servants shall serve him. I only point that out to you because there's this kind of like young thinking today, which is like, I just got to make my money, get my million dollars by the time I'm 30 so I can retire and not have to work anymore, as though that is some sort of thing to be aspired to. Living a life that's a corona commercial, which is soul deadening. For before there was sin, there was work, and after sin is removed, there will be work. There is something inside of you that can only experience the goodness of God's creation when there is working, and then you rest from work, and working, and you rest from work. In heaven, we will work. There's parts of you that cannot ever be fully alive where you're not working. So the, the goal isn't not to work. The goal is to understand always what is your contribution God wants you to make on the earth. And that doesn't mean you can't retire from a career, but it means you then, in that new season of life, have all the more energy and bandwidth to serve the Lord Jesus and make your mark felt on this planet. Anybody with me on that? It's just, it's a different way of thinking about it. I, I always challenge those in our church, what if you saw it as your honor and responsibility to create wealth for the kingdom and to go to work and to scale the business? I'm not trying to get out by 30 with my million dollars. I'm trying to create more wealth to fund and bankroll the vision that God has put in his house, which is God's plan A to change, to change the world. And there isn't even a plan B, not even a plan A.5. It's just the church. And so I'm going to have purpose going into the bank or into this, the stock market or go in, into the real estate world or into the world of fashion or into the world of sports or into tech or into medicine. And I'm going to be a light to the people I'm around, but I'm going to create wealth and scale this business. And I'm going to do so with a mind that it's protected by the purpose of generosity of making a difference to shine the light. And it's within my heart to, to see the goodness of God's original design for both gold and work released in this world. Not my sermon, but it's important. <laughs> it says, with the curse gone, verse 3, no more curse, Lamb of God, they're working. Then verse 4, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. They will no longer have to deal with night. No lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Come on, this is good stuff. This is our future, church. This is... This is our inheritance. And listen to me. There is already a table setting with your name on it. Because you, Ephesians says, are already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
What do we have to worry about? That's our future. What's the world coming to? That all of the future moves towards a throne. And people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation gathered around it. We either get on that train or we miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime. Those are the options. So the story begins with a tree and ends with a tree. Now, there are tons of famous trees in history, right? Like the tree that Isaac Newton was sitting under when an apple fell. That's a famous tree. It's interesting to think about how, the, how different the world is because of trees. Um, there's the made-up story of George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. Yeah, that never happened. Didn't happen. But it's a, it's a well-told story. People travel to see special trees. Every year, people hustle off to DC to see the cherry blossoms in, in bloom. People go to New York City right now. This time, there's, there's, there's probably somebody on a plane just because they want to go like Buddy the Elf, stand in front of the Rockefeller tree and go ice skating and kiss the girl and all the things. Kevin McAllister, he liked that tree too. He, he was happy with just about any tree, it seems. Um, there's so many trees that, that are famous. I mean, General Sherman, uh, Sequoia, largest tree by volume in the world. In Utah, there's, there's a tree that... That, that, that goes on for 110 acres. It's a whole colony of aspen trees. But interestingly, aspen trees, when you see a lot of them, it's all one tree. It's all one tree when you see aspens fluttering in the wind. It's supposedly the largest organism on planet Earth, the aspen colony uh, called Pando there in, in Utah. So lots of famous trees in the world. It's been said that the most photographed tree on the planet is the Lone Cypress there at Pebble Beach, 17-mile drive in Monterey. But of all the trees, the only tree ultimately that can bring healing to the nations is the tree of life. And that's how the Bible begins and ends. It's a story of two trees. We lost access to the tree of life because of what was taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And listen to this. We were restored access to the tree of life because of the cross that Jesus came to die upon. For cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And so the ultimate Christmas tree, as Martin Luther knew well, is the one found in John chapter 19 when it says, and he bearing his cross, he went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. This is the tree of all trees, the cross where our Savior died to restore our access to God's presence. And as I pointed out a moment ago, it was Martin Luther who was in history the first to bring a tree into a house with the explicit purpose of thanking God and teaching his children about God who had come from the stars, from heaven down to earth. Apparently, as the story goes, he was walking through the woods in the snow, and he saw the, the stars shining in the, in, the, in, the, in the sky, and the trees were silhouetting it so we could see the twinkling of the stars and the trees. And he just wanted his kids, as he was mulling over his Christmas sermon he was going to preach, he wanted his kids to understand and appreciate the light of the world, come into the world, Jesus who came to die on a tree. So he brought a pine tree into the home, 
and somehow attached candles all over it. And this was the year 1536, and it was the first time in history a Christmas tree illuminated, sat in someone's front room, and the world has never been the same. I hope you never see your Christmas tree the same way again without thinking about the cross, the cross that Jesus, the light of the world, came to die on to restore our access to the paradise of God. Because the Bible opens and we're with God in paradise. It closes, we're with God in paradise. But you can't undo what was done when we took the fruit from the tree until someone came to hang on a tree. This is Christmas. And I want to just, with our brief moments that we have together, I want to show you that Christmas and the cross, they were always in God's heart from eternity past. What am I trying to get you to see? I'm trying to get you to see five things. Before there was a Christmas, there was a plan. There was a plan. It was in God's heart all along. In fact, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 tells us that Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. What a thought. That before the four words, let there be light, came out of God's mouth and the world was, it was already in his mind what we were going to do and what he was going to do to fix it. What we were going to do, sin, and what he was going to do to fix it was in his heart before he made the world. And he went through with it anyway. Oh, go ahead and thank God that he created you, even though you were going to sin. And he did it anyway, restoring you unto himself. Before there was Christmas, there was a promise. Secondly, jot that down. That promise was visible the moment mankind fumbled. The moment we transgress, the moment we sinned, Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and her seed, and he shall bruise your heel, and you shall crush his head. What is this? Okay, so picture it with me. Adam, Eve, the serpents over there, the tree, the fruit, God the Father who, you know, he said, where are you, Adam? Because Adam was hiding. And they had made fig leaf clothes, which is interesting. Figs are the only fruit that Jesus ever cursed. He cursed a fig tree in the Gospels because fig leaves are essentially, in scriptural shorthand, a picture of religion without reality. Fig leaves. It's to not have the reality, but it's to have the appearance of religiosity. It's the only tree that Jesus ever cursed. It was a fig tree that had leaves but no fruit. That's what Adam and Eve, they were hiding over their deadness, their spiritual far from God state with these leaves, the appearance of being clothed. And God said, that's not, that's not enough. That's not, that's not going to work. And first of all, if you look into botany, it's the itchiest leaf on earth, okay? So you know God was going, oh, not the fig leaves, like of all the leaves, right? Come on, get them some um, tough actin, tenactin or something. This is going to be a problem. This is not, this is not good. Uh, so what did he do? He said, I'm going to shed a lamb's blood. I'm going to make you garments. I'm going to make you leather pants, basically, is what God said. And then he spoke over the situation, not thinking about the lambs that died on that day, speaking about the lamb that would die on that day, when he said, the devil will bruise your heel, Jesus. Born of a woman, a woman's seed, the virgin birth even was hinted at there, and then he, you will crush his head. He was saying, of course, that Jesus Christ, through the cross, was going to overturn the power of death itself. Before there was Christmas, there was a plan. Before there was Christmas, there was a promise. And thirdly, before there was Christmas, there was prophecy. 
There was prophecy all throughout, in between him having it in his heart at the very beginning, all the way up until Jesus came. You can tell Calvary was in existence before Christmas showed up because of the many messianic prophecies. Now, I don't have as much time to go into this as I wish I did, but let me just tell you this. In the Old Testament, there are 300 prophecies about what Jesus Christ was going to do when he got here. And he was mindful of them, and God was stitching together, weaving together every single thing that he might fulfill all righteousness. Even when Jesus said, I thirst, he did so because the prophecy was given that the Messiah would be thirsty and his mouth would be all dried up when he died. Now, of course, you could fake that. You could engineer it to where you got thirsty. But how do you engineer the city of your birth? Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> what tribe you're born into. Uh, and there's the whole virgin birth thing, which is sort of like a really hard one to fake on a number of different levels. And yet, prophecy said, when the Messiah came, who was going to crush the head of the serpent by having his heel bruised, which is the, 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 the slight injury long term it would be to die on the cross, that this was going to be someone who was born of a virgin. And listen to me again. There are 300 meticulously specified prophecies. This, this Messiah would die surrounded by criminals and he would be buried in a place where rich people would be buried. All prophecies fulfilled in the thieves who died next to him, right, at his right and his left on the cross, and the fact that Joseph of Arimathea would donate his grave for Jesus to borrow. Now, that's pretty punk rock, borrowing a grave. I could borrow $5, you could borrow my truck, but generally a grave is a long-term affair, right? We, we don't rent caskets. That's not a thing we do. But Jesus was like, I just need it for the weekend. Come on, that's bad to the bone. And it all fulfilled prophecy given long ago. Two of the most powerful prophecies that I would encourage you to make a part of your Advent journey would be Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. These are masterpieces. Literally, I mean, Handel's Messiah, it's all I, the journey of Isaiah 53, and, and he's the fact that Christ was, was going to come and he was going to die a very specific death with his hands pierced on a stick raised up, a tree raised up from the earth with his enemies standing below him, gloating up at him with stripes laid across his back. His back would be bloody. Everything, what they were writing about, Isaiah and David, they were describing in detail both being whipped with a flagellum, the cat of nine tails laid across Jesus' back by Pilate, and the death at the hands of the Romans, a death of crucifixion. Now, what's interesting about Isaiah and David's prophecy is that they wrote hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians the year 500 BC. And so they're describing something that didn't exist yet. And so people reading are like, what does this even possibly mean? They, they were prophesying. What was God doing? God was saying, here's how it's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen. So when it does, you'll know exactly uh, that, 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 I, that I meant to do it, that it was part of my plan from the very beginning. And the probabilities involved of one person accidentally fulfilling all this criteria, it's astronomical and honestly quite laughable. 
A scientist who was a mathematician named Peter Stoner, he wrote a book called Science Speaks, and he was making a case for scripture and the validity of our faith system based on intellectually you know, invited skepticism. And he said, OK, let's take these prophecies and let's consider the probability. And he said, 300 is way too many. Let's just start with eight. Let's say, what would the odds be that one person could just stumble into fulfilling eight very specific prophecies? And he arrived at the number one in 10 to the 17th power, which take a one and give me 17 zeros and a bunch of commas. And that's the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the messianic prophecies. You're like, but, but what does that actually look like? You need a visual illustration. So in the book, I'll never forget hearing this as a freshman in high school and realizing, oh, I don't have to check my mind at the door to be a Jesus follower. And, and having over the years met many NASA uh, astronauts and scientists and, and doctors and, and very bright people who believe in Christ and do so with their intellect satisfied. Peter Stoner says, one in 10 to the 17th power is essentially covering the state of Texas two feet thick in silver dollars, marking one of them blindfolding a person at random and setting him out somewhere in the state of Texas and saying, Find me that one silver dollar. That is one to the 10 to the 17th, one in 10 to the 17th power, which good luck, right? And Jesus did not fulfill merely eight prophecies. He fulfilled all 300 messianic prophecies. What does that mean? It's eight ball corner pocket, baby. We have reason to believe in the fulfilled prophecies of our Lord Jesus. Because before there was Christmas, there was a prophecy. Before there was a Christmas, there was a precursor, which is again and again a way of hinting at what was coming. A precursor is a, a harbinger or a sign of things to come or a forerunner. Now, Jesus did have a forerunner. His name was John the Baptist, and he made straight the way of the Lord. But Jesus also had these hints of the gospel that are all throughout the Old Testament, which are called types. Now, a type of something is something that looks a lot like something. And then when you finally see the real thing, you're like, oh, I saw a hint of that, right? For example, Joseph going into the pit, being sold for a sum of money by his brothers, and then coming out and being the emperor of the land, basically, under Pharaoh. A type is Abraham offering up his son Isaac, only to be told, you don't need to. God will provide himself for a sacrifice. A type is uh, Moses seeing the people bit by snakes and raising up a serpent on a pole and the people being told, look up at the serpent and you will be healed of the snake bite. A type is a water supply being polluted and bitter and Moses being told, throw a tree into the water and the tree will make what is bitter become what is sweet. The people being thirsty. And, and being told, if you strike the rock, the water will flow. The people being told, you're going to die if you're the firstborn. But if we put the blood of the lamb over the home. The, the, the type is Rahab being told, hang a crimson cord in your window. And who's ever in the home where there is a, a blood red rope will not perish, but receive life. All through the Old Testament, there weren't just prophecies. There were, there were precursors. There were, there were foreshocks. There were hints of what was to come. And these, Jesus said, if you search through the scriptures, these are they which testify of me. William Evans, in his great book, The Great Doctrines of the Bible, put it this way. If you cut the Bible anywhere, it will bleed. It is red with redemptive truth. 
the cross was always there long before Calvary. And listen to me, this is the final one. Before there was a Christmas, there was a pedigree. The pedigree was carefully, rigorously watched over by God, who was watching the bloodline, because he promised exactly what nation it would come from, descendants of Abraham, part of the nation of Israel. And when Jesus came into this world, he would come through one specific tribe. He had to be the lion of the tribe of not Benjamin, not Asher, not Dan, not Joseph, not Judah, not Zebulun, not, he had to come from Judah. And so that's why when you read the book of Matthew, when you want to read your Bible in a year and you come to Matthew, you're like, what are all these names? It is God fulfilling his promises. It was Jesus' resume that he could say, I am who God said was coming. It should give you great confidence to see God working in the affairs of men to bring about his son. And it should give you great hope when you see names like Rahab the prostitute and Bathsheba, Tamar, and you see so much sin in his family tree. And it gives you confidence that God can deal with what's in your family tree because of Jesus, who was willing to hang on the thousand mile tree, a great journey, a great distance, great and precious promises so that we could have this confidence. Confidence number one, we could have the promise that the cross wasn't a mistake, so neither am I. That's what the thousand mile tree tells us. None of this was just, just happened. None of this was a fluke. None of this was an accident. It was all orchestrated. It was, it was all supervised. And your life isn't random. God's working in your life. There's a purpose for your life. The cross wasn't a mistake, and neither are you. And secondly, because Jesus faced the cross with joy, so can I. I can face my hard things with joy. I can face my hard things believing on the other side is going to come good. That God works all things for good, even bad things, even hard things, all things for good. Could, could you say that with me? I think it'll give you strength. Since Jesus faced the cross with joy, so can I. And because Jesus rose after the cross, so will I. Death is not the end. My wife and I, in addition to the children you saw in that photograph, we have one other daughter. Her name's Linya. She would be 14. But when she was five, she went home to be with Jesus. 3,279 days ago, December 20th, five days before Christmas, she had an asthma attack and died in my arms. And some days, if I'm honest, it's hard to think about how much life has passed since I was last with her. And I think about how I feel like I'm getting further from her. But that's only when I look at it in the, in the human perspective. Because I think about her back here. She's not in the grave, though. She's not in my past. She's sitting by the tree. She's standing by the throne. She's in my future. And so every day when I wake up, I am getting closer to her, closer to her. I am 3,279 days closer to Linya than I've been since she left. And I know the holidays are hard, and I know some of you don't want to think about Christmas or talk about Christmas because it's a reminder of that mom that you love that isn't there anymore, or that person that's not there, or the ideal life that you don't have. But I dare you to look at Christmas differently 
to allow it to change everything about how you face this life and face your trials and how you're oriented more towards your future than your past. Amen?